I, I think it expresses my, perhaps my vision of history, that history is quite random and that the best historians can really do is walk along the beach of history and just pick up the odds and ends that are, are washed onto the shore by the, the sea of the past. And that really this is what I'm doing in the blog. I'm not doing it in a systematic fashion. I'm just picking up the pebbles, the messages in the bottle, um, the pieces of wood, the you know various shoes that have been discarded and washed up on the beach and, and enjoying them and, uh, and sharing them with a wider public. Ladies and gentlemen, And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. I hope you all had an outstanding holiday season. Allow me to offer you a slight apology here. Usually we like to have an episode for you around the turn of the year, but we just didn't manage to get it done this year. It's been a crazy holiday season for me and the BOA staff, so in a lot of ways I'm kind of glad to see the holidays in my rearview mirror as things are already starting to settle down here at BOA HQ. We're hoping to get the episodes out to you on a more regular basis, I'd say, you know, not necessarily week to week, but certainly every 10 days or so now that the calendar has turned to 2011. No matter when we get the shows out to you, rest assured, my goal each and every edition of the program is to bring you a home-run interview, and hopefully this week's edition of the program is no exception. Our guest this week goes by the name of Dr. Beachcombing. Don't let the tongue-in-cheek name fool you. Dr. Beachcombing is a fantastic writer and an amazing storyteller, and he's appearing here on BOA Audio and giving us his first ever interview as Dr. Beachcombing. Chances are you have checked out his website by now, Beachcombing's Bizarre History Blog, really one of the breakout sources of information in Esoterica of 2010. I'm going to go so far as to call Dr. Beachcombing one of the breakout stars in Esoterica of 2010. He puts out some seriously well-researched and well-written material literally day after day at Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog. And if you haven't checked out the website yet, you definitely want to do that, because his stuff is top-notch. Now, it's a little bit difficult to preview the episode, because it comes in right at two hours. It's just jam-packed with stuff. And just to give you a slight thumbnail, we're going to cover burned libraries, widely believed historical myths, forgotten kingdoms and lost realms, hinge moments in history, and stories that reflect something or someone being in the wrong place or wrong time in history. Among the tales you'll hear from Dr. Beachcombing in this conversation are the story of the sandwich in space, the Confederate exiles who left America to settle in Brazil after the South lost the Civil War, a 16th century account of witnessing unicorns in captivity, the Italian Shakespeare theory, and the Republic of Rough and Ready. And that's really 
a handful of the many, many stories you're going to hear on this edition of the program here with Dr. Beachcombing. Along the way, we're also going to find out more about this mysterious Dr. Beachcombing. He's going to pull the curtain back just a little bit to give us a glimpse of who really is the writer who has electrified online esoterica over the past year. Who is Dr. Beachcombing? You're not going to find out exactly, but you're going to find out a lot more about him here on the program. Altogether, really, it is a conversation that features a plethora of fascinating and strange stories that are sure to entertain, amuse, and boggle your mind. Coming to us direct from somewhere in Italy and giving us his first ever interview, it's the mysterious and enlightening Dr. Beachcombing. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Beachcombing, allow me to read you a little bit of his bio. Dr. Beachcombing lives part of his time in the village of Little Snoring in an undisclosed English county, not Norfolk, and the rest of his time in an undisclosed village in Tuscany. He likes villages. He is particularly curious about the strange and the unexpected in records of the past, exceptions that prove or disprove rules. He increasingly suspects that there are no rules, but that's another story. Over the years, he has put together several bulging file cabinets full of these strange and unexpected details. He does not expect his website to be read as a normal blog. It is more a library of the damned, that every so often the brave will turn up in internet searches. His website, of course, is Beachcombing's Bizarre History Blog, and you can find that at beachcombing.wordpress.com, and you want to spell that B-E-A-C-H. C-O-M-B-I-N-G dot wordpress dot com. Beachcombing's Bizarre History Blog. If you haven't checked this website out, folks, you are in for a real treat. You will be reading for days on end the sheer wealth of material that can be found at Beachcombing's Bizarre History Blog. Again, I can't put this guy over enough. He really is one of the breakout stars in Esoterica in 2010, and it is a real thrill for me not only to get his first ever interview, but also to showcase his fantastic work for all of the awesome BOA Audio listeners. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 27th, 2010. Dr. Beachcombing shares tales of bizarre history on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. I'm very excited about this week's edition of the program because our guest has really sort of burst onto the scene here in the last uh, six months or so with his blog, and it's becoming increasingly popular day in and day out, and I'm hearing more and more about it as uh, the days and weeks go by. So as I was collecting guests here for Season 6, I I put out a call to him to see if we could get him on the show. He's never done an interview before uh, in this incarnation, I guess you could say. So it's his first interview as Dr. Beach. I'm talking about Dr. Beach Combing. He's the man behind Beach Combing's Bizarre History blog, and you can find that at beachcombing.wordpress.com. And as I said, it's really uh, it's really picking up steam. It's it's taking the scene by storm. I'm seeing more and more references to it all over the internet. Uh, so it's exciting to get him on the program here to talk about how this all came about, and uh, you know some of his favorite stories that are featured at Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog. So without any further ado, welcome to the program, Dr. Beachcombing. Nice to be with you, Tim. Well, let's let's start out with, you know, the bio, the background, the origins of Dr. Beach. 
I know obviously this is a pseudonym, so I don't want to pry too much into your, uh, you know, your real world, your real life. But, uh, you know, who, who is Dr. Beach and how did Beach Combing's Bizarre History blog come about? Well, it came about really about six or seven months ago. Um, I, I've been through a long period of illness, um, and I, I just wasn't able to do the writing that I'd used to do, I mean, publishing books and the like, because I simply didn't have the energy um, or the physical well-being, really, to concentrate. And so I decided to do blogging under the name Beachcombing because I felt it was a way really just to just be able to produce something every day. Um, and as often happens with these things, I started, and I think this is the experience of many bloggers, um, and fell in love with it. I found it was almost therapeutic to write 500, 600, 1,000 words a day. And especially as I was often writing on things outside my field, uh, this proved a great joy. And so off I went. Are you a historian by profession, or I, obviously you're a writer, so, I mean, how did the whole history aspect of it come about? Well, I am a historian fashion, um, and I'm also a writer, um, but history was always, it has always been my first, so it was very naturally um, into history that I would pry. Um, I teach at university, and so I therefore have a speciality, but I also have two or three other periods that I'm particularly interested in, and lots of smaller subjects that I'm curious about. And so really, this was an opportunity for me to, to get outside my comfort zone, really, and, and stick my nose into a lot of places that I'd never really had an excuse to go before. And some of the stuff you feature on the blog, I mean, this is pretty obscure information like how do you find these stories that you dig up and, and present on the blog well I, over the years um, I, I've read a lot um, around history and so what happens really is I, I just have a lot of notebooks and a lot of notes going back 20 odd years oh, wow. and I, I try and pull things out and then build on them using sources taken from libraries taken from online and then, of course, the other thing, and this is where the whole the whole aspect of blogging is so wonderful, is that then people write into me with suggestions for other stories or corrections or additions to stories I've put on. And so then, in an ideal world, the stories just continue to grow like a snowball going down a hill. Yeah, I've noticed that on the post that at the close of them, then there's a, some additional material usually tacked on that you receive from a reader. So, you know, uh, it's like a communal situation there. That's right, yes. You mentioned in the uh, the Dead Language Parrots post about uh, how, you know, sometimes you have a particularly interesting morsel, a fascinating story, and then when you sit down and, and triple check the facts on it, you find out that it's a misunderstanding or an exaggeration. So I guess talk a little bit about that phenomena that seems to happen, uh, you know, as you're presenting these bizarre historical stories. Well, I think this is something that's just come up again and again, and perhaps it's been for me the biggest story of writing the blog, uh, is that for years, lots of these stories I've talked about at dinner parties or when I meet someone and we get to chat about history, and often I've just not checked the facts. I've trusted books. Um, but when I actually write a blog post on one of these strange stories, I then obviously go deeply into it and make sure the facts are okay. And I find it extraordinary how often, when you actually check things, the facts don't work out, that these stories are often inventions or misunderstandings. Uh, and the, the dead parrot post, 
uh, sorry, the Dead Language Post, uh, just for your, your listeners, this was a, a, a tribe in South America who had been wiped out and their language only survived in the tongues of parrots. Uh, there were a couple of parrots that had been captured from their last village when the tribe had been exterminated. And what, as soon as I started looking into that story, all the alarm bells went off. And actually, that's the one happy story of the 150-odd blogs I've written, where despite many people online, in books, saying that this story is a legend, I was actually able to trace the original reference. Um, and so that story stands up. But there are many, many stories. Um, I'll just give you one example. There's a celebrated battle um, in the 18th century where the Austrian army accidentally fights itself in Transylvania. Um, instead of attacking the Turkish army, it accidentally, at dusk, sets upon itself. Uh, you, you have an animal by its own tail, yeah. and supposedly 10,000 Austrians were killed. I, I'd often talked and told this story to people over the years. It's just complete legend. There's no basis in fact at all. Hmm. It's interesting to see, you know, when you sift through these, how many uh, turn out to be fact and how many turn out to be fiction. That's right, and I think that this is something that's become something of an obsession with me. Uh, when I teach my students at university and I, I talk about history, I always say we are lying dogs. We constantly manipulate the past. We constantly misremember it. We constantly misunderstand it. And I always give the example of, of studies looking at middle-aged couples or elderly couples remembering their courtship from when they're younger. And the classic question is, when did you kiss for the first time? And when you look at these men, Memories, you can bet your bottom dollar that the person will remember in kissing under a full moon and a starry sky. <laughs> so actually, if you go back and research these things, uh, certainly my memory of my, my first kiss with my wife was under a starry sky. In fact, when you go back and look, I, I worked out that it was four o'clock in the afternoon in a dull November when there wasn't a moon in sight. And I, I think that this is the problem with human beings. We're constantly rejigging our memories. Um, a post that should come up in a few days time, I was looking at the evidence from the Kennedy killing, mm -hmm. um, from perhaps our most important witness for that, Jean Hill, who, who died in 2000, unfortunately. Um, she's the so-called lady in red who was virtually on the pavement about four meters from Kennedy when the bullet went into Kennedy's body, or the bullets went into Kennedy's body, and her opinion are always quoted by conspiracy theorists. And I, in the post, I actually just set out her memories over the years. And you can see over the space of the 30 years, I mean, even at the beginning, because of the various videos and photographs that survived, we know that she misunderstood or misremembered some things. But over the years, her memories grow, her memories develop. And because there have been so many people attentive to, to her descriptions, because clearly this is an important historical moment, luckily we can check and we can see that slowly she's embellished changed and in the end really changed out of recognition this 30 seconds of her life um, but of course the difference is with most of us most of the time is that we have no sources with which we can check exactly yeah exactly especially with this with the history you're talking about on the blog which is like super <laughs> super old history we're not talking about the 60s here we're talking about like the 1600s 
I mean, but especially even more so if you go back to the times of the Roman Empire. Yeah. I mean, it, it becomes very depressing, really. I mean, when you look just how difficult it is to write history within our grandparents' lifetime, and then you think that we actually have the pretension to write history for the Roman Empire of the early Middle Ages, where often we just have a few thousand words for a century. I mean, really, it's, it's almost a hopeless endeavor from the beginning. Well, that's a good segue, actually, because uh, you mentioned on the blog you have like eight categories. So I guess we'll we'll sort of tackle these categories and go through them because it's, mm, it's a good overview for uh, you know for people who haven't checked out the blog yet for, for the kind of mm. different stuff that's there. So let's start, as I said, a good segue here because uh, the first one in the eight categories is burning libraries, books and texts that we have lost. So talk a little bit about some of the stuff you've uncovered in that realm. Well, uh, over the years I built up a huge file of books texts, in some cases inscriptions, but anyway, written things that we know once existed but that have since disappeared. And I, I, I found this quite romantic, I suppose, that I love books as I'm talking to you. I'm sitting in a room surrounded with two or three thousand books, and wow. um, I've always been fascinated by this fact that really so many of the books of antiquity, the Middle Ages, and really even so many of the books from, say, the 19th century, in the case of some rare books anyway, have not come through to us, have not survived. And I cut my historical teeth as a medieval historian. And so for me, I'm always very conscious of these books that we've lost. And the truth is that by now we're in the 21st century, if these books have not turned up. I mean, it's not like archaeology where you can hope to dig up a, a sword or um, a type of casket or a particular grave with a particular gold decoration. If books and manuscripts have not turned up by now, and they were written prior to the 16th century, then almost certainly they are lost forever. There's just an outside chance with Roman texts that a few parchments are, are there in the Egyptian sands. And so what I've tried to do slowly in the tag with burning libraries is build up, um, build up really, a list, a bibliography of the books we've lost. And it's surprising how scholars, no one really is trying to do this before. I mean, it could be a blog all in itself, you know, a book every day, one of the books we've lost. How do you know that they're lost? Like from subsequent references to them kind of thing? Right, so subsequent references would be one thing. Uh, another possibility is sometimes we have a fragment of them. Yeah, so sometimes this works. And sometimes we actually, they survived into modern times, and this is the, these are the really heartbreaking ones. They survived perhaps into the 17th century. We have a very good record of them. Perhaps we even have a few words copied out, and then they were lost in a fire. Oh, wow. Yeah. So sometimes the very old texts almost make it, but then just at the end. I mean, for example, the destruction of manuscripts in the Second World War was not small. Um, yeah. Now, what about the the Library of Alexandria? Because I've tried to look into this, you know, and it's it seems like it's shrouded in in confusion itself. So, what do you know about that whole story? Well, the, the, one of the biggest controversies about the Library of Alexandria is how many texts there are actually there. Um, what you've got to think about when you're dealing with Roman, Greek, and and to an extent medieval texts, obviously there are no printing press. Things are being copied out by hand, and one of the elements that the where are most confused in transmission. In other words, where a copyist writing out a manuscript most often gets facts wrong are with numbers. Because the nature of Roman numerals and Greek numerals, unlike the Arab numerals that we use, 
um, is that you just miss one digit off and things can change dramatically. Yeah. Um, Arab numbers are safer in that sense. And so we're not quite sure how big the Library of Alexandria was. But really, I, what I always say about the Library of Alexandria is this. I mean, the Library of Alexandria is probably the most famous library from antiquity that did not make it. But look, the truth is that every library from antiquity didn't make it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. libraries... Libraries in antiquity were always um, in palaces. They were always at the centre of capital cities. Um, they were the places that when cities went up in flames, I mean, these were, these were some of the first places uh, to disappear. And th there is that moment in technology where from, say... I mean, the, the first millennium BC, when writing starts being transferred from clay tablets and inscriptions onto parchment, as soon as that step is made, then the chances... I mean, it's, we're using a medium that is incredibly delicate. A Babylonian clay tablet will survive um, if we're lucky. But, I mean, what are the chances that parchment's going to survive? Unless we're very, very lucky and it's left there a meter under the sands of Egypt every so often, and something turns up, then then it's lost. Yeah, and it makes you think a little bit about the times we're in now too, with the written word seemingly you know falling out of favor, and the and the and the digital word coming into prominence. Who knows what will ever become of your work, of my work, all the stuff that's online. You know, it, you know, there's like a nuclear holocaust or something. That could, stuff could all be wiped out forever. I think, yeah, I think there were two or three ways to look at that. I mean, I think the first thing that always strikes me is that there's just so much more writing now uh, than ever before. And so, in a sense, even if it survives, the extent to which anyone will read it is doubtful. <laughs> yeah. um, because just with the numbers of blogs and writing online, um, I was talking to a poet recently who described publishing a poet online like putting a, a, a little paper boat and sending it down uh, the Mississippi. I mean, the chances of it ever reaching the sea or ever being read, if you like, by a reasonable number of people has to be very low. And then, like you say, there's all the questions of disasters on the Internet I mean, what would happen? How much of this would actually survive? Probably relatively little. But, I mean, taking it from another angle, something that always fascinates me is even now, I mean, if you look back to a period, say, the late 19th century, when there was an awful lot of writing, I'm often surprised by actually how much stuff isn't described. I did a post, for example, on the ravens at the Tower of London, about which there are many legends. And it's it's very striking how we, we just don't know when the ravens arrived at the Tower of London, because even with the millions upon millions of words from the 19th century, uh, from 19th century Britain, our records are touchy. And even now, with our billions upon billions of words, there are whole areas of human experience that, e even in the best case scenario, that will be lost. Yeah, yeah, because I guess it all depends on the interest of the chronicler. That, that's right, and I mean, there are the whole areas of life where either we're embarrassed or we, we don't have the interest to write things down. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. It's it's a you know it's a weird sociology uh, history in a way. Now the uh, the next category on the list is cobblers, which I find really fascinating, and I enjoy your <laughs> references to them. You know, over the course of the blog, these are widely believed historical myths. So so you know, talk a little bit about that and give us some examples of, of famous cobblers. 
I mean, cobblers is something that actually, with time, um, has grown to include all those areas um, where we, we manipulate and change the past. So it's not just historical myth. I mean, but, but I mean, I could give you a classic example of a historical myth, uh, an idea often found in the United States, that the notion that spaghetti was invented in China and brought back by Marco Polo from China to Italy. I mean, this is just complete nonsense. We have records of pasta um, from a, a good century, at least, before Marco Polo ever set off on his mission. Um, but this is something that then becomes big in American public in the 20s. Um, it's then put in a famous film with Cary Grant in the 50s uh, on Marco Polo. And from there, it just takes off as an idea. And even in Italy, you sometimes find Italians telling you that spaghetti and pasta were invented by the Chinese and brought back by Marco Polo. And so I suppose I, I have a fascination for these these kinds of stories. But I also like, I, I think for me, cobblers it has come to include any misperception of the past. And if I can just put up here a flag for my all-time favorite blog story, mm -hmm. um, and of course the way of the world is that no one ever reads this, no one's interested in it, but I just think it's a fabulous, fabulous story. Um, it's all about Lowell, who was a, a celebrated astronomer at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. He did a lot of work on Mars. He wrote some, by our standards, fairly bizarre works on Mars, describing and deducing the civilization of Mars. Um, but he also observed Venus a lot. Um, and at the end of the 19th century, he found that using his special telescope system, and he was at a part of Arizona where the sky was particularly clear, there was no artificial light, he felt that he had some of the best views in the world from a telescope. Um, by using this telescope, he was able to map on Venus a series of strange, and here I have to be careful, almost radial lines coming out of the center of Venus and slowly changing, but always leaving the center and moving um, across the surface of Venus. And he drew these on Venus, and he published these in several important astronomical publications. Um, and as with his observations on Mars, some people agreed, some people disagreed. But then the 20th century wore on and telescopes got better, and no one could account for these lines, because as telescopes got better, these lines were nowhere to be seen. And it was only in the 90s in an astronomy journal that someone revealed visited this mystery, um, that an oculist wrote in and said he's been drawing his own eye. What has actually happened is that he's created a telescope that's reflected his eye into it, and what he's seeing here are the veins on his own eye. Huh. And for me, this could almost stand as a metaphor for all our historical endeavors. We always want to look through the telescope at the past and understand things. And more often than not, we're drawing our own eye. We're, in other words, we get in the way of what we want to understand. Yeah. And that both creates myths and creates confusion. Yeah, that is a great metaphor for it. Absolutely, yeah. How about Forgotten Kingdoms? That's another section here, and that's countries, states, and uh, regni that time forgot. This sounds fascinating because... At first, it conjures up ideas of Atlantis, but I'm sure there's more that are even more obscure that I haven't even heard of before. 
That, that's right. I, this is another thing where over the past 10 years I've, I've built a quite a big file uh, of examples of, of kingdoms or, or territories that we really in history have tended to forget. And I mean, just to give you a chance example, just the other day I did a blog um, on the Isle of Man. Now, the Isle of Man is the island which is halfway between Ireland and Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a small island. It's, it's famous really perhaps today um, because it's some of the last places we have descriptions of the so-called fairy faith, in other words, where locals believed uh, that fairies existed. Um, we, we know nothing about it in antiquity. Uh, our records just aren't good enough. We know that the Romans didn't occupy it, though they occupied Britain. Um, and then slowly, in the Middle Ages, references start to bleed through to us. And what we learn is there's a little territory, a little kingdom um, of British Celts on this island, um, defending this island. And this kingdom survives from possibly the 6th century through to about the 9th century when the Irish Sea is flooded by dragon boats. The Vikings arrive and the Isle of Man becomes just an irresistible base for them. And at this point, the the old British Celtic kingdom of Manow, as it was called, just disappears under the waves. Um, and I always think very melancholy record. There were some uh, Viking graves on the northwest of the island where Viking chieftains on Man were buried, and they were buried with presumably local women who had been sacrificed. Um, and this is the end of the, the British Celtic kingdom of Manow. Now, if you read about the history of Manow, I mean, first of all, you will be very, very hard-pressed to find it. And even in history books on the Isle of Man, there are just a couple of paragraphs. And the bottom line is the best evidence we have for it is actually a single inscription from the Isle of Man commemorating a king called Guriat. Uh, and he is perhaps the only good evidence we have uh, for a king of Manau. Um, but there are lots of other examples, and possibly my all-time favourite example. I I'm quite a royalist, um, being British. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always had sympathies. Perhaps this is a, a typical... Uh, someone fascinated by the past, but always sympathy uh, for Europe's rather badly treated royal lines in the 20th century as they're slowly extinguished one by one. And there's a wonderful story from the Second World War that in, let's see, 1941, Yugoslavia, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, finds itself in an absolutely desperate position. Uh, it's trying to remain neutral in the Second World War for very good reasons. Um, but in the end, Germany gives it, an, give it, gives it an ultimatum, and Yugoslavia uh, slips over um, into the Axis, though it has a position of almost neutrality. At this point, the, very bravely, the, the officer class of Yugoslavia rises, uh, creates a coup d'etat, gets rid of the regent of Yugoslavia, Paul, and replaces him with the young Yugoslav king. But at this point, German, the, the Wehrmacht, the German army, is pouring into Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia, Yugoslav resistance lasts for maybe a week. I mean, with the best will in the world, there was no fighting the Wehrmacht. Yeah. And so the Yugoslav royal family, what's left of it, is evacuated to Britain. Uh, for the first couple of years after this, the British government, uh, along with America, as America enters the war, supports the royalist resistance in Yugoslavia. But then, and this was a terrible, terrible mistake looking back, though perhaps it was an understandable mistake, 
the UK and Britain begin to back the communist um, partisans in Yugoslavia under Tito, who will later become the ruler of Yugoslavia. And the, the British, the Yugoslav royal family, now based out of London, has this very unfortunate experience um, of finding itself, I mean, really trapped in an allied land, but the allied land supporting the enemy, the communist partisans, who are obviously dead set against a return for the royal family. <laughs> but what happens is that Churchill, um, when the young king of Yugoslavia, the last true reigning king of Yugoslavia, gets married and his wife becomes pregnant, Churchill is desperate that the heir to the Yugoslav throne, who is still alive today, um, must be born on Yugoslav soil because Churchill wants the royal family to have a chance after the war. And so Churchill, for a day, makes the hotel room in which they're staying Yugoslav territory. Uh, and I've written in this post about how this hotel room, for one day, for 24 hours, is another forgotten kingdom. It's the last trace of the kingdom of Yugoslavia um, before before Yugoslavia goes under the way and gets locked into its own rather unfortunate post-war destiny with Tito uh, and more generally with the Eastern Bloc. Wow, that's an amazing story. See, these are the kind of things that has made Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog a must-read for everybody out there. I mean, these, these kind of stories that are just stunning when you read them. And they're forgotten, yeah. I liked especially the, uh, the, the Great Republic of Rough and Ready as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty interesting. There were several of these in North America. I mean, I think the proper word is micro-nations or micro-states. But these um, small states that crop up around the world where, I mean, for example, there's a, a notable example from Australia of a farmer who unilaterally declares independence. But there were some very enjoyable U.S. examples, um, especially from the 19th century. I think there were four of towns, villages, or in one case, um, a whole district that declares independence because it gets annoyed at the federal government. And, of course, the great thing about the Republic of Rough and Ready, basically they declared independence because they were irritated uh, by mining taxes that the federal government had brought in. But I always loved the lack of stamina of the town in question that goes back over to the federal government where they find that the local merchants in neighbouring towns refuse to sell them alcohol because they say they're foreigners. <laughs> uh, and the idea of doing without alcohol and not celebrating independence they was just too much, and so they uh, they go back into the the federal family. Let's say, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you got to get the booze, man. You got to. You know. no, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the next segment here, the next category featured on uh, Beachcombing's Bizarre History blog is the hinge moments, the moments when history changed, and these obviously sound uh, pretty critical. So I, I guess uh, share a little bit about these, and and you know. Any in particular that stand out in your mind? Well, there have been a few um, moments, I think, in history that are very obvious where world history changes. I mean, for example, the moment where Japan's high command in the Second World War decides to go ahead with Pearl Harbor. Um, and I think that these are, these are fairly easy to come by. Mm -hmm. um, but what I've tried to do is find moments that are perhaps, again, a little bit more obscure, but when really we see the, the whole destiny of countries or the world changing. And I, I can give you um, many examples, but just to pick out a couple, um, one that I particularly enjoy dates from just after the Cuban Missile Crisis. British Secret Services are running uh, a double agent, a, Russia, a Russian agent out of Moscow. 
And I've never got to the bottom of this story, though the, the sources are absolutely impeccable. But this agent who was very high up in Russia's secret command is told by the British that if ever he believes Russia is preparing a preemptive attack on the West, um, in other words, a preemptive nuclear attack, mm -hmm. that he should signal this on the phone to his handler, who's working out at the British Embassy, by coughing and then deep breathing twice. Now, Britain was worried that this double agent had been found out by the Soviet Union, as indeed was the case. But at a certain point, his handler in the middle of the night gets a phone call, and it must have been, I mean, the most nightmarish of phone calls. He picked up the phone, and he heard coming down the line the signal warning him um, that the Soviet Union was about to launch a, a, a nuclear attack on the West, a surprise nuclear attack on the West. Hmm. Um, he hears this, this cough and these two sighs. And the British handler had information, and luckily he had the common sense, to know that the agent had been turned. Now, what I always ask myself is, if there had been someone who was a little bit incompetent, or someone who hadn't had the information to know the Soviet agent had turned, if he had got on the wire to London saying, look, we've had the signal, Russia is about to launch a nuclear attack. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those moments, I mean, goodness knows what could have happened. We, I mean, that phone call could have set off the Cold War. Excuse me, <laughs> it would have finished the Cold War and started the hot war, rather, um, and, and a very hot war. The other point about this story that I find extraordinary is why on earth would the Soviet Union have encouraged someone that they tortured, an agent that they'd interrogated, to give that signal to the British? Yeah. Um, yeah. Who knows? And one of the speculative answers to that that some people give is that the agent in question did it without his the, the Soviet police who turned him realizing what the code he was given. Was this perhaps his final act of revenge against the Soviet Union? Anyway, we'll never know. But but that's a nice example of where things came very close um, to history changing for all of us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is that is strange. Yeah, maybe he was he was a suicide attempt. <laughs> well, I mean, he must have known that he was, um, you know, this, this is Oleg, Oleg Pekensky. I mean, he must have known that he was going to die. And, in fact, there were lots of rumors about what happened to him, how he was killed. Um, his KGB interrogator refers to him being executed. Um, but there, there are rumors that he was actually burnt alive in a crematorium machine while other members of the KGB looked on. And I our source for that is not a good source, but it just reminds you that um, for people who turned, um, uh, um, I mean, a suicide mission would perhaps not be not have been completely inexplicable given what was likely to happen to him. Yeah, exactly. I assume and presume that uh, based on a lot of your writings that you've, you know, examined World War II pretty extensively. What do you make of all these sort of stories about? Nazis escaping to Antarctica. I know you have one here of a of a Nazi. That's me joking, really, ah. because um, the, the story there is, this is about Kurt. You, you know that after the Second World War, there were these amazing stories about Japanese servicemen turning up on Pacific Islands for the next 35, 40 years. Yeah. Um, and this is um, really me making fun of that <laughs> and, um, and, and coming up with an extraordinary story of 
a machine named Kurt. Kurt ah. was actually a Nazi weather machine. Uh, and he was dropped off on the coast of Canada. The, there's a fascinating episode in the Second World War called the, the Weather Wars. And the Weather Wars were basically wars with very few people included uh, on both sides. Um, in the Arctic Circle, because Germany needed to have its weather ships in the Arctic to know what weather fronts were coming into Europe and above all for the Eastern Front. Mm -hmm. And of course, Britain and afterwards the US, when the US enters the war, would do everything possible to keep the German weather boats out of the Arctic Circle. And so what you actually have are battles often between Eskimos, um, between the Inuit, between Arctic peoples, um, between Danes, Norwegians in, in the case of Greenland, and also on the, the Arctic Canadian coast. And it was this very shadowy war where very few people died, but the stakes were actually very high. And Germany at one point created a number of automatic broadcasters. Um, and these were machines built by Siemens of all companies that were um, brought into the Arctic Circle and left because, rightly, they reasoned that they would be more efficient than men left behind. And also they felt that even if they were spotted, um, no one would think that they were German. And in fact, whenever they left them, they would leave cigarette boxes, American cigarette boxes around, writing in English to persuade anyone who was going past that this was just some allied material. Yeah. And for this reason, Kurt, on the coast of Canada, actually made it through to 1981 without being discovered. And so I suggested he was the last uh, German soldier, in a sense, um, to be brought in from the Second World War. I mean, in any case, it's an extraordinary story, this, this machine tapping out weather messages all the way through the 60s, the 70s, and onwards. I don't know if his batteries lasted that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's it's yeah, that is strange. Now, what do you make of the idea that the you know that the Nazis escaped and hit? Well, well, let's start with Hitler. What do you think of that whole thing? You think he just pretty much died in the bunker, or there was more to it? Because I've heard various theories on. on yeah, what I, came I, of him. I I mean. <laughs> I mean, there are theories that go all the way from him dying in the bunker, as you say, to the Earth being hollow and <laughs> yeah. Hitler being taken away on a UFO. I, I suppose I'm, I'm fairly conventional. I think there is a strong case to be made that half of Hitler's skull is in a filing cabinet in Moscow. I think that the records are really so consistent um, between the various parties. And I think that what you have there, and perhaps there we go back to Cobblers, uh, my section on myths in history, mm -hmm. is that some Sometimes when a very impressive individual, either for good or for evil, dies, the world just can't really get used to the fact that this person is dead. And I mean, Elvis is a version of I was of just going to say Elvis, now. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, there were also examples that perhaps bring us closer to Hitler. So the idea, for example, that the Ceausescus, uh, the Romanian dictators at the end of the communist regime in Romania, many Romanians are convinced that actually they're still alive, even though they were shot on live television. I mean, their shooting is actually, was actually filmed. Now, I think this leads us into the whole area of conspiracy theories. I I'm fairly conventional when conspiracy theories are involved. I do think that there is nothing impossible about the state lying to us. Um, far, far from it. I mean, there were many proven examples of democratic states lying to us. But I think that there's something where we, we want to make the messy, 
complicated reality of history, perhaps simpler, even more romantic, um, by stories such as Hitler escaping. I mean, why would he just stay to the end in this bunker? Where, in fact, often history is just messy and complicated. And I, I really think Hitler um, just decided in the end, yes, to wait in the bunker to the end. And when the end came, he, he, he shot himself. Exactly. You know, oftentimes people try to, you know, they'll try to ascribe rational reasoning behind, you know, the irrationality of humans sometimes, and that that mm. sometimes bears out these these theories or myths too. It seems. Yeah, I, I, but I do. I think it's worth saying as well that um, conspiracy theories. I mean, I can think. I'm sure if we we spent half an hour brainstorming, we come up with a hundred conspiracy theories. I have no doubt that a couple of those conspiracy theories will be right, but I suspect it will be two out of a hundred. I mean, for example, I mentioned Kennedy before. I, I've always had an interest in Kennedy's assassination. I mean, there we have an example where uh, I mean, the U.S. government effectively in the late 70s said that they believed that there was more than one shooter at one point. I mean, there were strong arguments for and against, but that there is an outside chance there, I think, that there was more than one shooter. If so, the story that was sold knowingly or unknowingly in the 60s would be false. I mean, who knows if it is or isn't. But um, but then, yes, so many conspiracy theories are just us trying to make sense, I think, of the past. And I think conspiracy theories, because they usually involve some overarching theory of um, people making sense of the world. You know, I'm thinking of an extreme recent British case that we're all presently being ruled by a secret alien reptile race. Oh, David Icke. Like this. Exactly, David Icke. I, I mean, the... I think they also have a way of injecting the numinous, the holy, into history. They give a sense that all history has meaning, all history has purpose. I mean, all my experience of history is the opposite. I, I find history a fairly random uh, affair. Interesting, yeah, serendipitous, if you will. Okay, now the next uh, segment on there are uh, Wish I'd Been There moments, where you say that you'd give up everything but your wedding ring to see. So, uh, you know, what are some of these moments you wish you could have been there for? Well, there are many. Um, I, I think one example I, I was thinking about today, and which um, I'll soon write a blog on, is in the 4th century, the Roman Empire becomes Christian. It becomes Christian under Constantine the Great and his successors. And this is, this is one of these huge moments of change in history. I, I think there was nothing inevitable about it. Um, if that particular dynasty within the empire hadn't picked up Christianity, then I, I think Christianity today would be, if it existed at all, would be a very small minority religion. Um, but in the middle of the 4th century, we have an interesting figure who, inter who, who comes into uh, the empire and becomes emperor. And this is Julian. And Julian is remembered by history as Julian the Pagan. He was the last non-Christian emperor. And he was an incredibly vigorous and successful man. Um, he was a very charismatic individual. Um, he was some, one of these leaders, I think, who manages to change history. Um, Unfortunately for paganism, unfortunately for Christianity, he died relatively young. He hadn't been in the position of emperor for that long when he led his armies into the Persian deserts and, as had happened on several other occasions, met disaster there. Now, in his case, his army wasn't exterminated by the Persians, uh, but he himself was mortally wounded. Uh, and there's a terrible moment where the spear plunges into his chest and he's taken down um, from his horse and this very romantic figure and looking back we can see that with his death 
Christianity, returns to the empire, a Christian emperor comes back, and from then on, on paganism, Roman and Greek paganism, will slowly vanish from history. Um, and Julian lies in the sands, and his teachers, the philosophers, the Platonists, uh, who had been, if you like, his advisors, gather around him. And Ammianus Marcellinus, who, who gives us the best account of poor Julian's death, describes, I always think it's an extraordinarily um, moving passage, describes how these teachers discourse with Julian on the, the immortality of the soul, the idea which is very typical of Platonism, that our souls are immortal, that at death the soul will continue. And it's a very, it's a very let's say, intellectual version of paganism. But I always think to, to have seen this, notwithstanding all the blood and the gore, with the death of Julian, you would have actually seen the end of a, a whole way of civilization. They're just dying in the desert. It, it, and to have actually seen these teachers gathered around him uh, and Julian talking to them uh, about the soul because there was this Platonist belief that by discoursing on the soul, the, the passage of the individual soul would also be easier. Uh, would have been, like I say, very, very moving. I, I'm always in incredibly moved when I read about it, but to have actually seen it would have been just extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of goes back to that moments that changed history, you know. Like In they, fact, they that, no that's idea. also a hinge. Absolutely, it's also a hinge moment. And I think that's something that I, I have these various tags and categories. And uh, I... I often find that one story, one post, will actually fit into two or three tags quite easily. Oh, I'm sure, yeah, absolutely. You say you have 150 posts there already, so I'm sure, mm. you know, they cover a lot of stuff. Now, one of the uh, interesting posts that you had that uh, you point out uh, incredibly that had never been published on the Internet is uh, Winston Churchill's Dream. So share this wow. story with people because, as, uh, as you note here, chances are they probably hadn't heard of it before. That's right. Um, I have to say that Winston Churchill's estate is rather aggressive, and I'm not sure um, that the gods of copyright, if they knew about this, would be very happy. Um, <laughs> but I think that the um, I, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed and, and hoping that if they ever do get in touch, they'll just ask me to desist and I'll take it down. But this is one of my favourite pieces of Churchill's writing. Um, when we think of Churchill, we think of his speeches from the Second World War that were remarkable uh, works of England. They're, they're very peculiar in some ways. They, they almost hark back, as Churchillism himself did, to the 19th century. But I think many people today, perhaps especially outside the UK, forget that Churchill was also an accomplished writer. Um, and, and really, I wouldn't say perhaps a brilliant stylist, but a fine stylist. And many of the things he wrote um, have a rare combination of wit, but also, I mean, understanding of history. I mean, Churchill was one of these people where history just ran in his blood. He was a natural historian. And one of my favorite pieces of Churchill's writing is this text called The Dream. And what's interesting about it, Churchill writes it, I think, in 47, at a time when he's the leader of opposition, leader of the Conservative Party in Britain, but he's not in office. The Labour Party uh, is in office just in the post-war period. And the dream basically describes a vision that Churchill um, claims to have had. Now, I should say at this point that 
I, I don't think that Churchill meant that the vision actually happened. I think it's his way of expressing something that he wants to, to get across to his reader. Uh, but what happens in this dream, this catnip of old, catnap of old age, is he's painting in his studio and he's copying a picture of his father, Randolph Churchill, who was a great, if rather dangerous, 19th century conservative politician. Um, and his father appears before him as a spirit, uh, sat in a chair. And Churchill has a 12, 15, 18-page conversation with his father. And of course, his father, the, the last thing his father can remember, his father died um, in very sad circumstances from syphilis. Uh, he, he spent the last two or three years of his life, really, um, not being compass mentis. I mean, he, he was gone mentally. Mm -hmm. his, his brain had, had ceased to function. Uh, it must have been very cruel for him and his family, or particularly for his family. And his father recalls the last year he remembered in the 1880s, and Churchill basically fills him in uh, on what had happened in the meantime. And I think, again, I... I'm very much a, a fan of the 19th century over the 20th century. I think the 20th century has many things to recommend it, but also many dreadful, dreadful things happened. And really, Churchill is, finds himself in the position of justifying to his father the terrible things that have happened in the 20th century. And I know of no better, no better text that gets across to us the way in which the world and perhaps particularly the Western world, go to hell in the 20th century. Um, I, the line I always remember is um, Churchill describing the First and Second World War, and Randolph Churchill, Churchill's father, saying to Churchill, my goodness, these wars sound terrible. I imagine that almost half a million died. Uh, and of course, Churchill replies, 20, 30 million, 40 million died in each of these world wars. Um, just a sense that the happier, more peaceful period, at least from the British perspective of the late 19th century, um, disappeared forever in August 1914 with the beginning of the First World War. Yes, for sure. It seems like those wars definitely uh, changed the face of, obviously they changed the face of the planet. And it seems like that at that point then... Uh you know, Europe sort of fell by the wayside a little bit as far as being the center of the world as, uh, as, as it stands, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and the other, one of the other stories I, I saw in there for the uh, Wish I'd Been There moments, which I thought was really funny and interesting, and all another story that I'd never heard before, this was the astronaut with the sandwich. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I can't actually remember off the top of my head, and this is the problem of having written already 150 posts, which astronaut, is it Young or? It was, I have it here, let me see, it was John Young. John Young, that's right. No, it's a lovely story. Um, basically, John Young, the early NASA missions into space and then later to the moon, um, came up with some very unappetizing food that had to be eaten. Um, and there is this lovely story that from one of the early orbits, the astronauts were sick, uh, and Young brings with him onto the, the space vessel a ham sandwich 
that then he takes out and that proceeds to break up. And of course, the whole problem with bringing food like this onto the the early spaceships, I mean, NASA was terrified, and understandably so, that just a crumb going in the wrong place at the wrong time could, could destroy a spaceship. <laughs> and in fact, Young was berated publicly by several U.S. senators. Um, NASA gave him a dressing down. And it's ironic because in the end he became, in a sense, the elder father of the U.S. space mission. I think he's the, f- I think he's the leader of the first shuttle flight. That's right. Um, so, so it's just a nice moment, the idea of um, this astronaut with a sense of humor bringing out this, this ham sandwich on one of the early flights. Yeah, yeah. It sort of brings you back to the the Wild West days of uh, what what it was like back then when they were really, uh, <laughs> you know. I, I loved it. With, with that post, I was very interested as well to read about early Soviet es- uh, efforts in space and the way that the Soviets actually had a completely different way of looking at things. Instead of having very unappetizing food, they concentrated on letting their astronauts eat good food but putting all their technology into eff- and efforts into making sure the food could be taken care of. For example, having special vacuums that could take in the crumbs so that there was no damage to machines. But like you say, I mean, both on the Soviet and the U.S. side, we're, we're back in the, the Wild West days of space flight there. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's it's also, you know, it's interesting to see the span that, that gets covered, you know, in the blog. Uh, I mean, we're talking about stuff that was only about 50 years old here in, in, right now. And then, like I said earlier, you got stuff from the Roman Empire. It's, it's amazing the breadth of material on there. I, I do try and um, do this. Um, when I when I started look when I started thinking seriously about doing a blog, I, I began to look around at other history blogs on the internet. And what I found was, and there are two or three very honourable exceptions to this, but what I found was that understandably people are interested in one period, often one city, one region, one subject, and they concentrate typically over a century or a generation or 50 years. And I felt that what I wanted to do was bring lots of stories from different periods together. Um, And so what I try and do, and this is one of the few disciplines that I set myself, really there are two rules I have for myself. First of all, that I write a blog or at least post a blog every day. Um, And second, that I try not to do two consecutive days the same period. So let's say I do a contemporary blog one day, the day after I'll try and do an ancient blog or a medieval blog. So just I, I try and be changeable in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can tell just from just from that sort of stylings, too, that, that you're a writer and that, you know what I mean, that you, you think this thing through. It's not just a hodgepodge of stuff. I mean, sometimes to me it seems like a hodgepodge, but I, I'm glad to hear you <laughs> say that, yes. Oh, no, it seems very calculated on my end, so. <laughs> um, now, what about wrong place, exotic finds, things and people from afar? This sounds really uh, particularly interesting to me. Basically, what I was curious about with wrong place was looking for examples um, of artifacts, people, technologies, ideas that turn up um, just in completely unexpected places, sometimes a thousand miles away from where we would expect to find them, um, and sometimes really thousands and thousands of miles away. 
And I, I can give you a whole series of examples here. Um, I mean, for example, just over the last couple of months, we've we've had some very exciting finds from Stonehenge and a burial. Stonehenge, of course, the Great Ring, the prehistoric ring in Britain, mm-hmm. a burial there of a boy um, who seems to have come from Spain. I mean, how does a boy from Spain end up in Stonehenge? We have examples of Chinese coins from the Middle Ages that turn up on the east coast of Africa. Um, we have a, one of my favourite favourite examples: a, a, a Swedish ford where a medievalist, medieval archaeologist, digging at a Viking farm, dug up a statue of the Buddha from India. We have um, another, the so-called Maine penny, a Viking coin that turned up in northern Maine on the coast. Um, so I've just given you there a, a selection. Yeah. I mean, we, we have um, there's a, a lovely example of a example of Christianity in early medieval China. I mean, we always think of Christianity arriving in China at a later date, but actually Christianity arrived there very early and was then wiped out only to return later. And for me, what all these things have in common is all of them, with the possible exception of the main penny, are accepted actually by mainstream historians. There's nothing controversial about them. They're just at the very extremes of history. They're, they're extreme examples of the way that the world was actually linked together at an early date. And we think, well, actually, in the Middle Ages and antiquity, no one travelled. And we tend to forget about the Roman boats that went through the Red Sea and travelled to the south of India. Um, we tend to forget about the Vikings bridging the Arctic and reaching North America in the 9th and 10th century. And what I like about all of these, again, is that they're not controversial. They're simple facts, but they're facts that most people don't know about. And admittedly, they're at the very margins of history, um, and arguably they're unimportant movements of people, but nevertheless they're movements of people. Yeah, and you raise an interesting point, too, about the uh, the Vikings coming to America, because it, like, it seems like, like you said, that it's a fairly undisputed fact, but it's still... You know, it's, it's it's still not sort of like the accepted story here <laughs> here in America. I don't know how it is over in Europe, but it's like, you know, it, it, I think if you if you ask people, they sort of either poo poo it or they you know they say, well, it might have happened. When it seems like it's a fairly incontrovertible fact that the Vikings came here. I think there were lots of things coming together there. I think one thing is that for Western Europe and possibly also for the for the United States, um, Columbus. We, we fixate so much on Columbus that we we just tend to forget any other evidence uh, of transatlantic contact. The second thing is that the Vikings did ultimately fail. I mean, they backed out of North America. Um, we have undisputed now archaeological remains uh, from the coast of Canada that shows there was Viking settlement there. I mean, something that no Viking specialist would contest. But the Viking settlement probably lasted, what, 20 years, 30 years at the most, and then they backed out going towards Greenland again. Um, it didn't It didn't become permanent, where in a sense, the revolution that Columbus begins did. Yeah. Um, and then I think saying, there's the yeah. other thing. Sorry, sorry, Tim. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, so I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see. Had yeah. the Vikings stayed, then history would have uh, been rewritten that way. That's right. And something that I've never really come to grips with in my own mind, and I always keep this in my mind as an unusual fact, I mean, North America is discussed 
discovered by the Vikings. The truth is that as soon as they'd reached Greenland and seen birds fly west, as soon as they'd reached the coast of Labrador and seen the trees, I mean, they were always going to get to North America when they got to Greenland. Getting to Greenland was the difficult bit. Greenland, I mean, in Greenland, Viking settlements last all the way into the 14th century and then vanish in very mysterious circumstances. I just find it extraordinary that that Viking knowledge of North America never leaked into Europe. I, I just cannot account for that. And I suspect that it did leak in, but somehow it just got lost in translation. But Really, right up until the 14th century, there were people in Europe who knew about North America. They happened to live in Iceland, people who had contact with Greenland. And yet this information doesn't seem to have made it um, onto Columbus's radar or onto the radar of the Spanish and Portuguese explorers. Um, and I, I think it's a nice reminder that it's not enough to prove that someone's discovered something. You actually have to have a food chain that, that reaches from them all the way to importance centers of knowledge, because this knowledge was discovered on the periphery, but actually seems to have remained on the periphery. Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's, just, it's fascinating that it took so long between the Vikings and Columbus for anyone to, to come back. But, but especially given that even if the Vikings had backed out of North America, they'd remained. I mean, Greenland had a Viking community into the, the 14th century. I mean, it's incredible, really. I mean, the, the, the gap between the disappearance of the Greenland settlements and Columbus you know, it isn't that long at all. I mean, it's just a bit over a century or a bit less than a century. I can't remember the exact dates now of the Greenland settlement disappearing. Sometimes within me, I ask myself, is it possible that actually some of that information leaked through to Columbus? Um, and there, there were attempts in the 60s or 70s to argue this, but they really came to naught. And I think the, the balance of evidence is no, they didn't. Is this like the Piri Rees map? We all soon know about well, that. Well, all the controversies about that, and I, I think, again, the balance is that, that these maps don't really convince or they didn't matter. Hmm. Okay. This is history in the making. You're going to want to tell your grandkids and their grandkids and their grandkids. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. The rest is the same as history. Now what about uh, wrong time, harbingers and fossils, things and people that turn up in surprising time periods? Have you heard about this story about the Christopher, I mean, uh, about the, um, the Charlie Chaplin time traveler? Have you heard about that whole thing? No, not at all. Oh, sorry, yes, yes, the mobile phone walking across the screen. Yeah. Um, one of the things I try and do in my blog is not deal with stuff that's on the news. I want to put a post <laughs> yeah. that will surprise people. But that's the kind of thing that if I'm still blogging in five years, I'll, I'll put up a post on that. Um, I mean, but that, that's exactly the kind of thing, the, the, the Charlie Chaplin um, film that seems to show someone using um, a mobile phone. Who knows what the explanation there is. I guess what I'm looking for are examples of people who way before their time um, come up with things or systems um, that then vanish and are lost. And in a sense, what we were talking about with the Vikings in North America, a nice example of that. Yeah. 
but of course there are lots of others. I mean, for example, we always talk about flight at the very beginning of the 20th century, but there are several interesting examples before where it's just possible that someone may have invented something close to flight. Um, so that would be for me an example of people turning up too early at a time when the idea wasn't really ready to come to fruition. Um, and then, of course, it goes the other way. There are extraordinary examples of things in history that we take for granted that, that they disappeared in a given period, but are actually there, hidden beneath the surface uh, for centuries and centuries. I'll give you a very nice British example. The British Celts occupy Britain um, in the early millennia BC, perhaps a thousand BC, and likely to be much later. And then in the fifth century, the early English come in uh, and they essentially take over much of Britain, the part of Britain that becomes England, and their parts of England begin to speak English and the Celtic languages die. Um, that at least is the orthodox um, explanation. But within England, we know that right into the late 20th century, in parts of the north of England, uh, there were shepherds who spoke Welsh, Celtic language, when they counted their sheep. Only in that one example, um, when they would go out and count their sheep, they wouldn't count going one, two, three, four, and these were all English speakers, remember, they would count using Welsh numerals. Hmm. And the best explanation for this, though it's one that I just find almost impossible to credit, is that Welsh, British Celtic, a Celtic language, had survived in the north of England from the 7th century, say, when these areas were overrun, all the way through to the late 20th century. It's just extraordinary. And that's another lovely example of these records simply not appearing in earlier writing. Even in the rush of material in the late 18th and early 19th century, it's not until we get into the late 19th century that people begin to notice that shepherds in some parts of the north of England have these strange counting habits. That is strange. Yeah, you wonder about these little things that turn up like that. Mm. In a way, that almost that, that's a perfect, I guess, segue for the for the last of the eight categories. That's uh, what the hell, my god, or even I don't understand this reference at all. Sort of uh, things that stump you. So I guess talk a little bit about what you know. What what are what are the stories that stump you in particular? Well, I think this is actually the the tag I, I tend to use the most, and um, I, I just really, because it explains so many of my posts, or it expresses so many of my posts, that there are just issues here that I simply do not understand what is happening, and perhaps in a sense it's my plea to readers to, to please get in touch and enlighten me um, if they can, or, or stories that have shocked me. I think one that I've become very interested in in the last few weeks, I put up a post um, about several 19th century records of eagles uh, picking up babies and carrying babies away. And what amazes me about these stories is the evidence just seems to be overwhelmingly good in that we have witnesses, um, we have very convincing sounding stories, and yet when you actually look the eagles in question and the countries that are involved and the type of eagles we're talking about, it is virtually impossible that these eagles could have even picked up a newborn baby. 
given the weights involved. Yeah. And so then you have the whole question as well, what is going on here? And I, in my post, I examined some of these news stories and suggested that there were a suspicious number where names were not given or the names that were given were suspiciously general names, Smith, Jones, these very common kind of names. And I suggest at the end that, in fact, probably most of these stories, if not all of them, are just legends. And so um, my what the hell has really transformed into a cobbler, uh, to use another of the, the tags uh, that I described earlier, that these, these are tall tales, if you like, that naive or mercenary journalists included in their newspapers. And it's not to say that eagles will never attempt to attack people, um, and it's not to say that eagles will never attempt to attack children or babies, but they're more likely to do so either as they perceive it to defend um, their territory, perhaps the approach to their nest, or perhaps because they just miscalculate, they think they can lift yeah. um, a young baby. I, I'm not making the case here for eagle sentimentality. I'm just making the case <laughs> for physics, that, that eagles are just not up to the job uh, of lifting and carrying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That covers the eight categories, so obviously... Could I, go could I bring one in? Because, I mean, one sure. of the things, that those eight categories, I think I wrote that, uh, the description of those eight categories, when I was beginning. Mm -hmm. um, however, since then, I've added a couple, and I just, I'd love to, to give some space to one of these. Sure. Um, which is what I call my rogue researchers category, and I, I promise that sooner or later I'll, I'll put a link into this. Um, so far, I've only put up three posts on this, yeah. but I think that as I spend a lot of my time in the academic world, I'm always amazed by the extraordinary things that academics sometimes get up to in trying to prove or test historical theories. Um, and this is another one of my favorite stories. Um, Essentially, there are lots of debates about how the mayor sacrificed uh, their victims. Um, and I came across this fabulous, fabulous story. Um, and again, I, I found this in a, a, an academic article. It's the kind of thing that most people would never come across. But there's the whole question of how they got to the beating heart that they would then extract from their victim. Typically, the victim would be drugged. Then they would put in the knife and extract the heart. There's the whole question of how they did it. And a couple of Spanish authors, um, in, in cooperation um, with colleagues in Mexico, actually managed to convince, and I just find this incredible, I mean, just beyond belief, but they managed to convince a morgue, a public morgue in Mexico, to simulate may and human sacrifice, presumably on their John Doe's. I mean, I have no idea, but I mean, presumably no family would have ever. I mean, it's one thing yeah. to, to let your son's heart be used in a transplant. It's another to further knowledge of um, Spanish academics. But that they actually tried to replicate the, the daggers used and did different experiments to see how it would have worked. And they came to an interesting and useful conclusion. But I just love the idea that academics were actually prepared to effectively simulate sacrifice on real-life corpses um, in the 21st. I think it was the very late 20th century. Uh, and so that's something else I hope to develop, these rather wacky academic stories where academics go um, far beyond the call of duty and, and arguably perhaps wrongly beyond the call of duty uh, in trying to get to the bottom of various historical mysteries. Well, you know, 
science will not be stopped, right? Isn't that that's the, right? That's right. It's all <laughs> downhill. <laughs> now, one of the uh, sort of recurring elements on the blog beyond the categories is uh, is you seem to find a lot of interesting stories regarding food, which I think obviously everybody eats. So you know these these would resonate with people, I think. And talking about bizarre, I mean, some of these stories are pretty strange. Like mm. things people ate, how they prepared food, and all kinds of stuff like that. So I guess talk a little bit about you know some of your favorite weird historical food uh, stories. I think I think one of the things I'd say just first one of the experiences of writing a blog, and I don't know if this is something universal or not. I try to mix and match a lot, but what I find is every so often I go through phases where I go crazy about something. So for example, a couple of months ago, I had the moment where I went crazy about elephants. Uh, there was a period when I was crazy about birds. Um, and at the moment, I'm definitely in a food phase where I, I happen to find lots of food stories. It just seems to come and go that there are these strange tastes in the same time, in the same way that sometimes we want vanilla ice cream or sometimes we want chocolate ice cream. Sometimes I just get these tastes and perhaps go down one street a little bit excessively. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as food stories go, I mean, there were several. We've, um, there's the, the story of the, the sandwich um, on, the, uh, on the early Apollo flight, um, the, the sandwich floating through in the weightless atmosphere. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me is the, the origins of pasta. This is something I've been reading a lot about recently, uh, the possibility that pasta um, was something that came out of the Arab world into Sicily where the first spaghetti factories were made. Um, I came across a lovely story recently that I put up a post about that in Central America in the 17th century there was a cathedral where it was normal for the ladies at high mass to have their servants bring in um, steaming hot cocoa drinks just as mass was being served. And what I find extraordinary about this story. And I, I think, I'm not sure if anyone has really put two and two together here. I find it difficult to imagine they haven't. But from our sparse knowledge of Mayan sacrifice, chocolate seems to have been associated with blood sacrifice. Drinking chocolate may have been the prerogative of someone about to be sacrificed, or possibly someone who was doing the sacrificing. If this is the case, the fact that, and what's interesting about the lady in the ladies in question is that these were Spanish or Creole people who'd settled there, had been there for a couple of generations. If they were taking cocoa before taking mass or associated with mass, I mean, it's irresistible the connection between the fact that they would be taking the blood and body of Christ and that they're taking cocoa. I mean, it just seems to be something that lines up with pre-Columbian beliefs about sacrifice. Yeah, interesting. Now, also, the, uh, there was one here on biodynamics. Let me see if I can find that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's, a, that's a lovely story. Uh, I mean, essentially, biodynamics... Uh, I have quite an interest in organic food, uh, the whole question of whether organic food tastes better, whether it's better for us or not. Um, And recently I've become fascinated by the whole question of where the organic food movement comes from. And I was interested how much of the organic food movement has its roots, at least in industrial times, um, in Nazi Germany or in 1930s Germany just before Hitler or even in 1920s Germany. Um, 1920s Weimar Germany. Germany before Hitler was a very was a very unusual place where many of these rather peculiar ideas got a hearing 
And some of these were then taken up by the Nazi party when it came to power. And because of the nature of Nazi power, all you needed was someone high up in the party who had an interest in, say, seances or Tibet. And the next thing you know, then funding would be found for this particular project and, um, and off scientists would go. Now, what biodynamics has is really is it's I, I described it I think in the post as a homeopathic version of organic farming mm-hmm. um, in that it's using peculiar techniques that are completely natural but whereas organic farming just strictly uses natural techniques I mean really they're using techniques for biodynamic farming which are essentially a cult I mean for example um, if there are field mice causing problems then catch field mice kill them, incinerate them, and scatter the ashes. I mean, we're almost talking of sympathetic magic here. Um, But biodynamic farming does actually have a good record. And quite why this is, this is the kind of thing that for me, someone who considers himself rather rational, I have problems with. Um, But biodynamic farms that exist to this very day do have remarkable records of achieving record crops and also very large and impressive vegetables. Uh, There's one famous biodynamic farm in Scotland, the Findhorn Farm. But what happened anyway with biodynamic farming was that the Nazis took it up. And I think it's it's too much to dishonor biodynamic farming um, in the sense that the, the Nazis took up many things. Um, they took up Wagner, we still listen to, to Wagner. They took up Nietzsche, we still read Nietzsche. But they also took up biodynamic farming and actually biodynamic gardens were set up in the various German concentration camps and in their death camps. Yikes. Yeah. Now, also, you talk about futurism, which I thought was interesting, because you hear some people described as futurists nowadays, but they're not really sort of <laughs> like the futurists as uh, they first came about. So I guess talk a little bit about, you know, the the, the world of the futurist, if you will. Well, I think that when you think of... Um Nazi Germany and fascist Italy in the 1920s and 1930s. Nazi Germany comes in in 1933, but fascist Italy is already there in 1922, essentially. You have their two dictatorships um, that are really quite different. Fascism seems to... Let's start with Nazism. Nazism attracted, I would say, on its weirder edges, the occult, um, spiritualism, irrational beliefs... Whereas fascism, on its strange fringe, uh, attracted this movement called futurism. And futurism was essentially um, a philosophical movement that wanted to do away with the past. And in a country like Italy, where the past weighs very heavily, where you can't walk down a street without bumping into a 15th century palace, I can kind of see where futurism was coming from. They wanted to modernize Italy. Um, But the result was that they came up with lots of rather crazy ideas. Uh, and I'll just give you one of their most famous crazy ideas. They were sick of Venice. Venice, of course, the city of canals, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. They wanted to go into Venice and concrete over the canals and make them into racing tracks. So 
there was the idea that anything was old, they wanted to get rid of or sideline and replace it with the modern. Now, there was futurist music, there was futurist art, some of which is, is notable. There was futurist poetry, there were futurist novels, but there was also futurist food. Um, and what the futurists did here, um, and in fact, I had the great pleasure of trying some futurist food last week, so I'm very excited about this at the moment. But what the futurists did was they had a completely revolutionary way of looking at food. And I have to say, I'm not a convert, but I think they may have been on at least partially. They may have been on to something. Yeah. What they said was that we all need nutrition. Okay, that's great. Let's just give people an injection in their butt or some vitamin tablets. Let's get that out of the way. Now, forget about nutrition. Now let's concentrate on giving ourselves interesting foods and drinks. Foods and drinks, not necessarily that will give us pleasure, because I think for many of us, pleasure means bloating ourselves and falling asleep, but food um, and drinks that will shock us. Um, and I'll give you an example of the two futurist foods I tried last week that I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, the first was called Italian Breasts in the Sun. Um, and was, <laughs> no, really, they always have these very outrageous names. Um, and it was essentially, I mean, it was, it was unbelievably interesting to eat. Um, it, and when I'm describing it, you'll probably think it was disgusting, but that's only about an eighth of the story. Most of all, it was just very unusual to eat. It was a series of ground almonds mixed and ground very finely. Um, a liqueur was poured over the almonds. Uh, a strawberry was placed on the top with candied fruit. And around the candied fruit was sprinkled very, very strong black pepper and chili seeds. Hmm. Now. Again, it sounds disgusting, but actually it was kind of weird and interesting because it was just touching so many different taste buds at the same time. Um, another food I had the same day were the futurist diabolical roses, uh, which was just very simply buying a bunch of 12 roses, washing them very thoroughly, dipping them in a rather delicious batter, and then deep frying them. And again, who would eat roses? Well, actually, they're surprisingly interesting. The taste is curious. You have the taste of batter, but you also have the gentle rose taste that I'd never experienced before, but that was certainly curious. Yeah, that is interesting. I've never eaten a rose before, so that does... <laughs> No, no, yeah. in, in, no, but it, it was a new experience for me too. What I would say to, especially to those of your listeners in the States, um, there were, I think, four or five restaurants in the States that still serve futurist food. I think it's a particularly famous one in Chicago. The problem is they tend to be incredibly expensive. Uh, probably the best thing your listeners can do is get in touch with me and I'll scan them some pages and they can um, do their own ingredients at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Now, what about here? I've seen another post here on invisible libraries, which I find interesting. Uh, books or collections of books that have never existed except in the fantasies of readers. Yeah, th this was an idea that um, I, I think I came onto when I was probably even in my 20s. Um, and I, I don't know if you know, there's a graphic novel writer named Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman, in one of his novels, describes a, a, a what he calls a library of dreams, which were all the books that the great authors of the world thought of, but they dreamt of, they thought of, they imagined, but they never had time to write. And I always thought, for example, there's a, favorite, a famous G.K. Chesterton novel named The Man Who Was Thursday. And in the library, 
library of dreams in this this graphic novel. There's a book called The Man Who Was November. G.K. Chesterton was a Catholic writer, and I think what Neil Gaiman was trying to say was that here we actually have G.K. Chesterton not being Catholic, but almost being can we say pagan, going back to, to older uh, to older religious ideas. And so I, I've always been fascinated by this idea, not just of books that have vanished, um, but books that never existed, but that people uh, imagined and conjured up. Um, and so what I did with this was I've looked for various lists through time uh, written by authors or wits of books um, that should have existed, if you like, and I, I, I've given various examples uh, on the post, but I, I think my, my favourite example is from the time of the forgery of Hitler's diaries. Uh, I suppose we're in the very late 80s. The forgery of Hitler's diaries found that Spiegel, the German magazine, was buying up all the diaries of Hitler that he was faking. And so he put together um, a list of other documents that he believed he could get hold of, in other words, that he knew he could forge, um, and gave it over to Spiegel. And to read this list today is just comic because, I mean, it's a Nazi historian's wet dream in the sense that it's just, <laughs> it's just a whole series of the, of the kind of books that someone who studied Nazi history would mortgage their house to get their hands on. Yeah. Um, it's just too good to be true. And what makes me laugh about this list is really that anyone with a modicum of common sense seeing this list should have said this is too good to be true yeah this doesn't make sense and yet that didn't happen Spiegel was taken in um, and they they continue to put money aside for these extraordinary works bizarre history man that's you know it's uh, it's unbelievable I'm looking at one here on on your blog that just completely blew my mind and that is uh, these Confederate exiles who left America after the Civil War and settled in Brazil, somewhere between 10,000 and 20,000 Confederate sympathizers or Confederate soldiers or whatnot, Southerners, if you will, uh, who, who right. went to Brazil and, and formed their own little community there. I guess talk about that because uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have never heard this story before. Yeah, I, I find it amazing that this isn't better known in the United States. I have to say it's reasonably well known in Brazil. The, the Brazilians know that there was this influx of Confederate soldiers, Confederate families, not just immediately after the Civil War, but also during Reconstruction when many Southerners uh, became very disillusioned with the way things were going. Um, and what happened was that families left the Southern states and the Brazilian government actually privileged them, and they believed, probably rightly, that these southern families would bring in new farming techniques, important innovations, and slavery was still legal in Brazil at that date. So what happened was many of these families went down there, began their lives again, and there's, there's one very moving gravestone um, that describes one of these, the, the son of um, a um, one of the settlers in this small Confederate community um, outside São Paulo, um, and on his gravestone there's this wonderful epitaph where it says three times the rebel. And why is he three times the rebel? Well, he's three times the rebel because he rebelled against the Union. He then rebelled against the settlement and left the southern states to go down, and then he also takes part um, in an early, late 19th century civil war in Brazil, 
where he rebels against the central government. So his idea is that he, he's this triple rebel. And I love this romance um, <laughs> of, of these, um, you know, the eternal rebel. And these communities survived, and in, to some extent they survived to this very day, but by now they virtually all speak Portuguese. I mean, I think the last English speakers were dying out in the 1950s. And of course, some of them have come to the States and learned English. It's an important part of their destiny. And if any of your listeners are interested in this, there is a yearly festival that they put on just at the graveyard and the church of the original uh, founders of the community. Um, there's also, and I've not done a post on this yet, but I look forward to doing so, there's also a town in the north of Mexico where many Confederates went uh, after the surrender interesting yeah it's it's it's, it's <laughs> people you know turning up in strange places goes back to that uh post earlier now what about mysterious like animals you know there's a lot of like mythological type creatures and then there's you know accounts of of people who who describe them and stuff how, how much do you think that's hyperbole and legend and how much do you think maybe that that some stuff we've written off as hyperbole and legend you know we might have gone extinct or we might have missed somehow I mean, I, I have quite a big tag on cryptozoology, and um, I, I think that my, my perspective on this is that, again, I, I consider myself a fairly rational person. I believe in the rational universe, uh, and when the t by the time we get to, I, I don't know, ghosts, etc., I, I do start to have some problems, though I, I confess between you and I to a fascination. But cryptozoology, I think, for me, is a kind of illicit version of that, because, of course, we know all the time that new animals, birds, insects are discovered month by month in the world and presumably the number of large sea mammals or the number of large mammals uh, that remain to be discovered, discovered will be relatively small now. But I, 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 do, I do have a fascination for these things and I do often ask myself, do some of these ancient and medieval descriptions of bizarre creatures actually are they hiding the description of an either an animal that we know but that is being seen in an unfamiliar fashion or even an animal that no longer exists but that once did exist and this is something that i find just 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 fascinating uh, i mean just a couple of weeks ago i put up a post on the mowers of New Zealand, a 19th century letter uh, to a New Zealand newspaper from a gold prospector on the southern island who had been walking through a wood and walks into two three-metre-high birds that were mower. Um, now, if he was telling the truth, and I suspect either he's lying or telling the truth, I just can simply not believe that there would be a misunderstanding here, then there were moa in late 19th century New Zealand, and this is an animal that has died out. Now, we know that the moa once existed. Um, there's no question about this. We dig up their bones all the time in New Zealand. Um, most historians believe that they died out a couple of generations after the Maori arrived in New Zealand. But is it possible that there are other animals and birds that no longer exist, but that were actually described in our history books? Um, and surely the answer is yes. Um, one of my favorite examples uh, that I give in the blog um, is a visitor, a Italian visitor to Mecca in, let's see, the very early 16th century. Um, and we believe that this Italian converted to Islam before converting back to Christianity. He was arguably the first Westerner to go to Mecca. Um, and in a compound at Mecca, he sees two unicorns. And he describes these animals with great care. 
and they sound like unicorns. They have a single horn. Now, if there was just one animal, then we would be looking at some strange genetics for it. We would be looking at a deer, and we, I mean, this is something that we, we know well from the world, that sometimes two horned deers just have one deer, sorry, one horn that happens to grow in the middle of their forehead. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have two of them. I mean, what on earth was he seeing? And again, I would just love to say that he's an unreliable chronicler, but He's actually a very reliable chronicler. Historians always comment on how reliable he is. This wasn't something he'd heard from someone else. He saw it himself. He didn't see them at a distance. He sat and watched them. How do you explain that? I have not the slightest idea. I suspect there are no such things as unicorns and that unicorns have never existed. But this is the kind of account that fascinates me because there are no easy answers. Um, And just last night, um, I I hope to put this up on the post sooner or later, I came across a reference in Arabian mythology to an animal that sounds very much like our unicorn. Goodness knows if that's connected or not with this story I've just recounted. Yeah, you really wonder what we may have dismissed that mm. that we should go back and take a second look at. Now, Absolutely. One, one of uh, history's mysteries that always sort of has fascinated me, and we're working on trying to get a guest on to you know do a full show about it, and that's um, the big Shakespeare debate about whether or not he wrote uh. the plays and all that uh, you know contentions. So what's your, as a historian, I'm sure you've examined this issue before, so, uh, you know, what's your take on that whole argument? Well, I've done a couple of posts on Shakespeare already, and I've done one post that I find, one of my burning library posts, um, about the possibility that some letters from Shakespeare survived into the 18th century when they were thrown away uh, by an inattentive housekeeper. Um, But this whole question of of Shakespeare, um, I mean, did Shakespeare really write the plays or not? I'm afraid that I will give you the boring answer here. I suspect it is as it's told to us. One of the things that convinces me that it is, is that it's true that in the 16th century there was a pseudonymous tradition. In other words, the idea that you write in someone else's name. But I just cannot think of a conceivable reason, and I'm sure there will be many listeners who are rearing up in their seats with fury, um, that why even a noble writer um, would have bothered to write in the name of an actor when... In fact, um, there was always the possibility of just simply um, inventing a name completely. That's one of the things that's always stuck in my mind. I think the other thing to say is we don't have much biographical information on on Shakespeare, but what we do have... There are some um, some lovely stories about his womanising, for example. Um, what we do have squares very well with the kind of personality I imagine wrote those plays. Okay, interesting. All right. So I, I'm giving you here the conventional answer, but let me just give you an outrageous thing on Shakespeare that I'd love to write in a post sooner or later. Sure. Um, in the same way that in the United States, uh, the whole question of the Confederate settlement in Brazil doesn't seem to be very well known, but in Brazil it is. Um, in Britain, and I suspect in the United States, no one has ever heard of the Italian Shakespeare theory. But in Italy, this is very big. And this is the idea that Shakespeare was Italian. Um, And this is a very peculiar idea, uh, but the notion is that Shakespeare actually came from a family that seems to have been Catholic at a time when it was no longer to be Catholic, no longer normal to be Catholic, and that his family has a name that translates very easily into Italian. 
and that arguably his father was an Italian exile. Um, Shakespeare also knew some Italian and perhaps a lot of Italian. And that his plays, time and time again, seem to show evidence of knowledge of Italy that goes beyond just banal, normal knowledge. Um, there seems to be a very good chance that Shakespeare travelled in Italy. And I think that one of the interesting things about Shakespeare, and there are other individuals in history, Jesus is perhaps the most famous example, where we have a huge gap in Shakespeare's biography from his childhood years to when actually he becomes an accomplished writer and actor. And we don't know what happened then. Is it possible that he lived in Italy, that he travelled extensively in Italy, or is it even conceivable that his family was Italian? Anyway, that's something to ask your guest um, when you finally get him on the show. Absolutely, yeah. I never even heard of that whole that whole aspect of the theory, and the guy I'm looking at takes the conventional approach like you, so yeah, he's not introducing, uh, he actually, I think, goes point by point through the various, uh, uh, you know, suspects and explains why it's not likely them or something Why it doesn't like add up, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess you know you you kind of you piqued my interest here when you when you said you went through an elephant obsession because you know first of all that's just strange in and of itself and then you tie that into bizarre history and it makes you wonder what kind of stuff you uncovered with elephants. First of all, how did you even get on an elephant kick and what did you discover with regards to elephants and bizarre history? Well, I, I think the, the great thing about elephants is this, that we, we of course, we're all used to elephants um, because we've been to zoos, we've seen television programs. But in the ancient world, elephants had two special features. First of all, they were huge and frightening animals. If someone saw an elephant for the first time who had never seen an elephant before, it wasn't like seeing a cow for the first time or seeing a sheep for the first time. The likely reaction wouldn't, wasn't fascination but sheer horror. The second thing is that elephants have a long relation, um, a long relationship with humanity because they are war animals and I think this is the key. They were used in wars and so because of this, what you have are occasionally in history armies turning up with two or three hundred elephants in places where no one had ever seen an elephant before. And the thing that got me started on this is that we know that in 43 AD when Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, invades Britain, he brings a couple of elephants with him. And I've always asked myself, what on earth did the British warriors who met the Romans think when they saw these creatures? Because there was just nothing in the British fauna. There's nothing in European fauna that comes quite. I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you think when you see an elephant for the first time? And I, the closest was presumably a cow that happens to be about 50 times too big. I mean, it must have been absolutely terrifying. Um, but anyway, from there, I went on to look at various other elephant stories. I think I became a little bit cryptozoological with some of the, the whole question about mammoths. Did they survive? Um, I found a rather crazy guy from the 19th century who alleged that um, elephants made it into North America. And I also found Mongol elephants, no less. And I also found a lovely account 
um, looking at some Mexican um, pre-Columbian remains. Uh, so, sorry, Honduran, not Mexican, Honduran pre-Columbian remains, alleging that there are designs in these pre-Columbian remains um, of Indian elephants. Um, and I argue that this isn't the case, that we have a cobbler story here, but still it's, it's, it's very colourful. Um, and one of the things I, I very much hope to go on with the blog if I have time and energy and health, um, and I, I was actually thinking of in instituting a, a yearly elephant week where I just do <laughs> blogs, uh, just do posts on elephants. And I already, um, I've still got something like six months to go, but I already have my, my seven elephant stories ready. So, Oh, wow. Well, they are a peculiar creature, that's for sure. So I'm sure, you know, as you said, it's it, they're, like, well, they're one of a kind. So when you see them... There's also the question, and this was another of my, my blogs, um, that my post rather never really got picked up on, that I, I hope sooner or later someone will stumble on and be able to illuminate me, uh, illuminate the, the question for me. There's the whole question really of... Um, when elephants were last used in warfare, um, because we know that even today, Burmese tribes um, use elephants for transporting goods um, against the, the rather horrible Burmese government, the, the junta there. Um, we know as well that the Viet Cong in Vietnam used elephants to transport things. But I found a couple of examples from the late 19th century where elephants actually took to the field of battle and attacked. But at the very end of the late 19th century, at a point where European armies were using artillery. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We're primarily a paranormal show, so I'm sure people will be interested in this one. I found this account that you post in the blog pretty interesting. This is the musings of a 15th century writer on on the nature of extraterrestrials. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I think this is something that I've always been fascinated about, that through history, um, you do have speculations about creatures on the moon, in the sun, on the planets, when people begin to understand that the planets um, are not of the suns or that they're, they're different from the stars. Um, and then even on the stars as time goes by. And you also have speculation about creatures living, um, well, I, I mentioned before, in the sun as well. Um, so th th there were various, I, I, I've always found this interesting, that, that speculation about E.T. is not a modern thing. And I've always liked going back into the past when I stumble upon one of these references um, and recording it. And I think probably my favorite references actually come from the 19th century. I have a post on the blog um, about a, a celebrated case from New York, um, I think in the 1860s, when a New York newspaper claims to have found reports from Scotland that a, a noted astronomer had been observing creatures on the moon through his very powerful telescope. And one of the things that crops up in the 19th century, but actually you can trace all the way back to the 16th century, is that as this is a very Christian period in history, people begin to worry about the souls of these creatures. <laughs> um, and you, you actually you, you start to have preachers standing up and saying, well, if there are creatures on the moon, we need to convert them. You have theologians writing articles where they say, well, do extraterrestrials have souls? You have all these questions here that 
to me seems incredibly obtuse, but clearly mattered awfully to these people. So no, it's, it's, it's all a fascinating question. I think there's also the interesting point that we, we have a period in early medieval history and perhaps in ancient history where people begin to place other races, other beings, fair, fairies, gnomes, dwarfs, etc., on distant lands, the other side of the world, the Antipodes, the, the ancients used to believe in a, a spherical globe with continents that were out of our reach on the other side of the globe. And I, I've never really found the missing link, but what I suspect happens is slowly these ideas fall out of favour and the extraterrestrial life replaces them. And so instead of having fairies living in the Antipodes, we have a report, for example, from the 8th century saying that there were continents on the other side of the world and that King Arthur and the fairies live there. What happens is that later on, um, creatures on the moon, creatures on other planets replace that. And so the other night I was watching with my daughter, E.T., that you can trace, really, E.T. all the way back, not to the first reference to E.T. Uh, in the 15th century to extraterrestrials, to alien life, but the first references to fairies living in other dimensions and other places way back when in the Middle Ages and then beyond into antiquity. Yeah, yeah. It does seem to be the case. It's a big theory amongst people in the UFO field that, you know, these stories were just misattributed uh, extraterrestrials. Yeah. I mean, there's also all that question as well. I suppose that I'm not a big UFO believer, but there's certainly the possibility... I mean, of course, you don't have to be a UFO believer to think this, but uh, I mean, if you, it is interesting that certain phenomena, certain natural phenomena, for example, and the classic example is the Aurora Borealis, could have been misinterpreted in different periods as different things. Um, and it's interesting, for example, that in the Dark Ages, the Aurora Borealis seems often to have appeared at times when Europeans believed that there were dragons in the sky and that we can actually trace the connection between these two. I mean, is it possible that um, in later centuries this turned into a, a belief in fairy activity, say? I mean, I mean, there are all these questions of misperception, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you make a point, too, that, yeah, we may someday figure out that UFOs and, and these sort of things are something completely different that, you know, un discovered weather phenomena or something. That's right. I mean, well, one of the things doing this blog, it's something else I've learnt about myself and about writing, is that as I was perhaps hinting earlier, I'm a bit of a sceptic, a, a rationalist where many uh, paranormal things uh, come into play, but I do find the whole field infinitely, infinitely fascinating. Um, but one thing I find, and one of the things I enjoy writing posts now, is that often, even if I disagree with people, just the sheer colour of the stuff that people come up with um, is, is just wonderful. Even if I disagree with it, this is stuff that's just too good to let go. And I'll just give you an example um, of, uh, I hope in perhaps January or February to do a week of posts on King Arthur. Um, and when I do so, I mean, one thing that struck me is that the origins of King Arthur are incredibly interesting. But for me, almost more interesting are just the absolute 
absolutely out of the left field theories that people have come up with in the last 200 years to explain King Arthur. Um, that King Arthur was an alien, that King Arthur came from Ireland, that King Arthur was Russian, that King Arthur was a Celtic god. That, do you see what I mean? Yeah. That whatever the truth behind these things, we need to celebrate the sheer wealth and richness of the theories um, because whether they reflect badly or well on humanity, they're very entertaining reading. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Now, we've talked here like nearly two hours, and I'm sure I'll get emails from people, uh, you know, if I don't sort of follow up on this. So I guess, sure. can we talk a little bit about the, the name, the beachcombing name? I, I, obviously, this is a pseudonym. Is there a reason behind that? Is it sort of like because this is your, your moonlighting doing this blog, so you're sort of keeping it under wraps from somebody, or is it just, uh, you know, I've noticed also that, your posts have a fantastic sense of humor, so I, that, I may tie into that as well. So I, I credit you for that. Well, I, I think there are probably a couple of reasons behind it. I mean, first of all, the name itself. Um, I, I think beachcombing, um, before my health went to um, hell a couple of years ago, I always used to hope that um, later in life I'd publish a book, Beachcombing, that would be perhaps a series of, of different, strange, peculiar stories from history. Uh, this was one of my ambitions at that time. And, and so when I came to write a blog on the subject of bizarre history, Beachcombing just seemed a natural title. Uh, and giving myself this name, it was a name I felt very comfortable with. Um, I, I like writing uh, posts because I can always sign myself off as Beach, which is a name I quite like. <laughs> you know, in another life, I, I could I could quite happily be called Beach, I think. And um, I, I think it expresses my perhaps my vision of history that history is quite random, and that the best historians can really do is walk along the beach of history and just pick up the odds and ends that are, are washed onto the shore by the, the sea of the past, and that. Uh, really this is what I'm doing in the blog I'm not doing it in a systematic fashion I'm just picking up the pebbles the messages in the bottle um, the pieces of wood, the pieces of the, the you know, various shoes that have been discarded and washed up on the beach and, and enjoying them and, uh, and sharing them with a wider public I mean as to why I do it um, I think at the beginning when I started off I probably just did it because I didn't want to humiliate myself I, I was going to do a blog and if I was going to put it up in my own name, and this probably reflects badly on my self-esteem and, and sense of worth, but I just felt, well, you know, what am I, if I put my own name up there, I'm going to feel very invested, but almost over-invested, and the result is that I'm going to feel very self-conscious about the whole thing, whereas if I put a pseudonym in, I, I can just simply, if it goes wrong and I do it for a month and get bored, I can just escape and pretend it never happened. But then, actually, when I started off the blog, and by writing it in this persona of beachcombing, I found that actually, and this was the first time I'd done anything like this apart from a couple of novels I'd written earlier in my life, I think that by writing with a different name and a different personality, or perhaps it would be truer to say an aspect of my personality, um, perhaps the grumpier aspect of my personality, <laughs> I, I found it was it gave me a tremendous sense of freedom. It, it was almost therapeutic. It was something uh, that brought me great joy. So much so that I now have the problem that when I have to write other things sometimes, I sometimes forget I'm not beachcombing um, and start writing with that voice that I use on the blog and I have to blink a couple of times and just cross things out and then start again. 
And that's really how it's worked out. And I have to say that I didn't, I wasn't aware of this when I started, but now this will be the, the other reason I'm glad I used the pseudonym, even if this wasn't the original reason. Um, I mean, there's no problem as far as my, my life as an author goes, but I also teach at university. And I think that some of the material I deal with, um, perhaps as a political aspect, um, sometimes a fairly racy aspect, I, I don't like to think of my students reading my blog. I don't like to think of um, my department head reading my blog. <laughs> and so for me, it gives me a tremendous sense there as well of freedom, where I can imagine myself censoring myself on some issues if there was ever the question of, uh, of people who were close to me in my professional life reading it. Um, and I, I'm sure that sooner or later this will come out, um, and I'm not particularly worried when it does, but I have to say for now it does give me this extra sense of um, uh, an extra barrier between myself and my professional life that I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it affords you a certain amount of creative freedom, you know. To it does, uh, it does. Explore. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously, you you're an excellent writer. And and the, as I said, the humor in the post is, is fantastic. I really, you know, they usually crack me up uh, when I'm reading them. So <laughs> well, I'm very glad. I'm very glad. So you you kind of alluded to it here. Now what, the obvious question, you know, is what's next for you? Obviously, you're going to keep posting these blog posts and stuff uh, daily. What are the chances that we're going to get our hands on a, on a Beachcombing's Bizarre History book in the future? I mean, I think people would, would love that. Well, um, would I, uh, I mean, there I have certain contractual obligations that I have to take seriously um, yeah. with publishing houses, with my agent. And so I have to think very carefully about this. Um, but perhaps in a dream world, what I would like to do um, is publish a whole series. I mean, the great thing about, about writing between 500 and 1,000 words a day is that that's what, 180,000 words a year, 200,000 words a year. I mean, that's 200,000 words is... It's what, three books? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of material. Um, now, my problem is that it takes a lot of time to write these posts. Um, I would say that I try and write one a day. Sometimes I'm just too busy, so usually once a week I write maybe three in a day, so I have a couple in the pocket. But I would say that pretty much one day a week goes on writing uh, the posts. And so for me, there's a whole question about whether I'll still be able to continue. I'd very, very much like to. There's also the whole question of my health. I think that this does me a lot of good um, emotionally. Um, it means I can write and enjoy myself. But again, I, I have to take that into account. Um, a second child, fingers crossed, will arrive in January. So I have lots of things on. But in an ideal world, what I would like to do is I would like to continue to develop the blog. I would like to invite people to write guest posts. So I'd have guest posts uh, perhaps once a month or so um, from historians, from other writers, from other bloggers. I would also like to bring together a kind of a league of good history writers, uh, perhaps set up an annual internet Oscars for history writers. Hmm. Um, I would also like um, to bring out a, a series of books with under the beachcombing name. I've been tentatively offered by uh, a British magazine a column with the beachcombing name. That's another possibility for the future. 
I will then have the very difficult decision sooner or, late, sooner or later of leaving behind the present site and actually, if things continue to grow at this, the present rate, putting on my own site because at the moment I'm working on the WordPress format and of course I couldn't sell books out of there. Um, if I did that, then there are whole questions about, well, perhaps I'd even consider doing some advertising so I could do a little bit less work on other things and concentrate more um, on the blog. <laughs> and I, I, I'm saying all this just to communicate to you that I, I do have ambitions um, to continue with the future and I, I very much hope I'll be able to and I hope I'll be able to, to create a series of books and writings around the beachcombing theme. That, that can be sold or, or sent out around the world. Uh, and one of the things that will be particularly important for me, I'd be very keen, um, I can't quite give these books away free, but I'd very much like to give these books just at the price of postage to the many people who've written into me with suggestions um, and stories and perspectives and corrections. I'd very much like to set up a list of people who I would just give books to in that sense. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, wow. Well, you know, as I'm sure you've seen and I've experienced myself here, and, uh, you know, you build a community and it really sort of takes on a life of its own and, and people really you, you get surprised by the generosity and kindness of people out there uh, you know it's extraordinary I, I mean I, I feel really privileged when I, when I started the blog this was something I never really took into account I thought that I would have people write to me but I I suppose I A I didn't expect the quality of the people who wrote to me the, I mean the, the interest of their, their emails the intelligence behind them the, the curiosity and B, I didn't expect just how pleasant people would be. I think that, in, I mean, I've now been doing blogging for about six months. I have not once had a rude email, not once. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, not what. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I'm sure that I'm sure that if we spoke again in three or four months, I, I wouldn't be able to say that anymore. I, I must have just been very lucky. Um, but especially given that I'm fairly opinionated on the blog, um, I, I've been really, really touched by people's kindness, and also the the number of people as well who maybe don't write in with any information, but just um, say that they like reading the blog, and uh, and this is something that I've I've greatly, greatly enjoyed. Um, and for me, it's also had the double advantage um, that after I'd been going about a month, I, I confessed the secret of my blogging uh, to my family and friends. Uh, <laughs> and now I, I include quite a lot of autobiographical stuff on the blog. And actually, it's become my equivalent of Facebook in the sense it's actually how a lot of my friends and family know what's going on in my life. Uh, by reading the blog, I mention what's happened today, you know, the car blew up, this kind of thing. Um, it, it, so it, it's proved from a whole series of different dimensions a and that was something that when I started, I just, I really just wasn't in my imagination, wasn't in my plans. That's been perhaps the most marvelous side of doing the blog. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, well, I discovered the blog about three weeks ago or so through uh, the great folks at The Anomalist. Oh. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a fantastic website, and uh, I was trolling for news there uh, and, and said, what is this Beachcombing's Bizarre History? I've never heard of this. This blog, and then I just dove in. It, it really is a fantastic piece of work, and, and folks should definitely check it out. I hope they do. 
And, and so with that, let me just thank you uh, once again for coming on the show, Dr. Beach, or Beach, I guess we'll call you, since we're kind of friends now, since we've talked for two hours. <laughs> and I, I wish you the best of luck. You've alluded to your health a couple of times. I hope things turn around for you. I hope you feel better soon. And, and you know, best of luck with the, with the baby on the way in January. And, and you know, I just also wanted to say, you know, we've, we have guests on here sometimes that you say to yourself afterwards, boy, I would love to sit down and have a beer with that guy. And you are definitely, uh, you know, at the top of the list for sure amongst those guests. And I'm sure the listeners feel the same way as well. So hopefully someday in the future our paths will cross. Well, thanks ever so much. I really enjoyed the talk. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Allow me to offer some serious, humble thanks to Dr. Beachcombing for coming on the show and for giving us his first ever interview. We spent the last two hours talking about it, so by now you definitely want to check out his website, www.beachcombing.wordpress.com, B-E-A-C-H-C-O-M-B-I-N-G.wordpress.com, or just punch into your Google machine, Beachcombing's Bizarre History and you'll find it straight away. Trust me, my friends, this is a website you're going to want to go out of your way to check out and spend some quality time at. It is outstanding. Moving right along now, it is time for BOA Audio listener feedback, but this episode is easily a week overdue, and folks have been waiting for the latest installment of BOA Audio for quite some time. So let's askew this week's edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback and get back to it next week. My inbox is still overflowing. I apologize to the folks who I said I would respond to. Like I said at the beginning of the show, my holiday season has been insane, and I promise I'm going to get down to business here on answering emails and getting serious once again here at the end of the show for BOA Audio Listener Feedback. If you want to reach me and let me know what you think of the program and of the latest guests or guests you want to see here in 2011 on the program, there are a number of ways to get in touch with me. You can go to binallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button, or just write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And if you want to get more interactive, you can join up at the official BOA forum the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. It is home to a whole bunch of different cool and kooky characters who discuss the world of the paranormal as well as the world of pop culture. Join up at the official BOA forum to discuss BOA audio, Ben All of America, and the world of Esoterica and beyond. Beyond those means, you can also find me on a whole bunch of different social networking sites, Facebook, Twitter, and MySpace. Befriend me, follow me, poke me, it's all good. I'd love to hear from you on those sites as well. So shoot me a line, share your thoughts, and in the future, your correspondence may be featured here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, allow me to give thanks to the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna. Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. The BOA staff has a whole bunch of columns that have been posted in recent weeks, and we've got a whole bunch of new stuff coming up as 2011 unfolds. While I have your attention, and since I'm reaching out here to the hardcore BOA audio listeners, we are looking to add at least a couple more writers to Banal of America here in 2011. I looked back at the calendar and realized 
that we did not bring in any new writers in 2010, which stunned me and kind of lit a fire under my ass a little bit here to reach out to you folks and see if anybody wants to join up at BOA and pen a column for the website. So shoot me a line if that's something you might be interested in, and we'll work out all the details there. No need for me to take up any more of your time. But if you feel like you have a voice and you want to talk more about the esoteric, BOA is definitely the place for you. So get in touch, and we'll see what we can get going. We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to Banal of America Audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, then you're only getting half the story. BanalofAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the uncomfortable part of the show where I have to ask you all for your help to pay the bills here at BOAHQ. What you just heard was a nearly two-hour conversation with a guest who is in Italy. Trust me, my friends, that is not cheap, and you're going to be hearing even more international episodes as 2011 unfolds. So we turn to you now and ask you to make a donation. Help us out here at BOA. How do you do that? There's two methods to go about making a donation. You can go to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. That's right there on the homepage at BOA. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe and secure. But maybe you don't trust the Internet. Maybe you don't trust PayPal and you want to make a snail mail donation. Well, we've got you covered there because we have a BOA PO box. Here is the address for the official BOA P.O. Box. Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And let me spell those out for you. Tim Benall, P-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass, 01866. And as we've been noting here at the end of the program, if you're going to make a snail mail donation, if you're going to send something to the P.O. Box, first of all, please include your email address so I can shoot you a line and say thank you. And if you're going to make a donation via check, please make it payable to Tim Benall and not Benall of America, since my bank is very anal. And as if you don't need me to remind you once again, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we have got a real barn burner of an episode for you, my friends. We're welcoming back longtime friends of the program, Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, the UFO mystics. They're coming back to the show for our annual examination of the past year in ufology. This time around, though, we kind of want to change things up a little bit. In the last few years, we really poured over the minutiae of the last 12 months. And it got a little tiring last year, I'll admit it, and I think Nick and Greg will as well. So this year we really opted for more of a free-form discussion on the state of UFO studies as 2010 came to an end. We did cover some of the biggest stories of the year, but more along the lines of how they reflect the field of ufology. Some of the stories we do look at include Stephen Hawking's warning about contacting aliens, China's big airport UFO event, the UFO nuke press conference, we'll remember Zachariah Sitchin, Robert Miles, and others we lost in the past year, and we'll talk about the Emma Woods controversy and the shakeup at MUFON. Plus, we'll look at cryptozoology as well as emerging esoteric trends, as 2011 begins. 
It's no secret to the hardcore BOA audio listeners, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop are two of my very best friends, not just in the world of the paranormal, really they're just two of my best friends in general. So this is really less an interview and more a conversation between three good friends who happen to all have a very serious interest in the world of ufology. And hopefully the episode will give you guys food for thought about where we as a field stand when it comes to unlocking the enigmatic UFO phenomenon. It's fast, it's loose, it really is a lot of fun. It's Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern joining us for our annual wrap-up of the year in ufology and an examination of the state of ufology as 2011 begins. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio. Once again, let me thank Dr. Beachcombing for coming on the show. Check out his website, beachcombing.wordpress.com. That should keep you pretty busy until the next edition of BOA Audio. And, of course, I want to thank all of the amazing BOA Audio listeners for your support of this program. You are the fuel that drives the machine. You are the BOA Audio listeners. You really amaze me week in and week out with your support of this program. So allow me to thank you once again for everything that you guys do. Thank you humbly for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Badal, thanking you for listening and signing off.